the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Good and gracious God, we give you praise and thanks for all your gifts and blessings. We offer our thanks, our Eucharist to you, for the Eucharist that you give to us, the body and blood, soul and divinity of Jesus Christ, your Son, in the Holy Eucharist, in the liturgy, and in all the other ways that he remains and is always with us. We ask you to bless us as we gather in his presence. We ask you to bless us as we continue to contemplate these mysteries, and that the mysteries may dwell ever more fully within us as we become and seek to become ever more fully stewards and more faithful stewards of those mysteries. We ask your blessing upon us and all we do in your name. Give us safe travels and be with us throughout this week as we seek to offer thanksgiving to you. May Almighty God bless us, guide us, and keep us, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hello, welcome to Theology at the Eucharistic Table podcast, episode 5. This is Caleb Cunningham, one of the hosts of the podcast. Um... I'm from the Diocese of Baker, um, which is in Eastern Oregon. So there's two dioceses in Oregon. There's the Portland Diocese, and I'm in Eastern. The Portland Diocese is in the Western side, and I'm on the Eastern side. Very rural diocese. Um, That's a little bit about myself, a little bit about the podcast. Um, It's not going to be a regular discussion with Abbot Jeremy, but it's actually a talk from our theology symposium. He's responding to the speaker that we had for that symposium. Um, Now I'll hand you over to Brother Israel, and he'll give a little bit more about the podcast. Hi, before we go on to to hear a little bit more about the podcast, this is the last, this little snippet is the last recording we'll do before the school semester ends and we all scatter across the western United States. Caleb, where will you be this summer? So I'm going to be in Bend at St. Francis of Assisi Parish. Uh, it's the biggest town in my diocese and only about 60,000 people. Uh, so pretty small compared to the towns over here in Western Oregon. Um, I'm just going to be there as a seminarian helping out with whatever needs needs helping out with at the parish. Um, and I'm actually going to be doing a whole pastoral year there. So I um, won't be coming back to seminary until the following year. Yes, and Nelson and Ben will also be gone this following academic year on pastoral year uh, where they will be serving back in their home diocese. But fear not, we will continue to both record and release episodes, God willing and technology allowing, every other week like we have been doing so far. As Caleb mentioned, what we're presenting today is Abbot Jeremy's response to a theologian and professor from Notre Dame, Dr. David Fagerberg. And this was Abba Jeremy's response. He does a lot of recapping of what Dr. Fagerberg presented to us. That way, although you don't have the audio for that, you'll get a sense of what he presented and what Abba Jeremy thought was particularly impressive. You'll get a couple of questions from seminarians responding to Abba Jeremy at the end of it. And as Abba Jeremy says, it will then come to a crashing halt. Two things to know. Abba Jeremy will reference uh, Mrs. Murphy at some point. Just so, that doesn't refer to anybody in particular. 
Mrs. Murphy was a fictional character created by Dr. Fagerberg to speak of maybe the average parishioner whose encounter with the faith is largely through the weekly liturgy, uh, who might not have a lot of theological training. So that's that's Mrs. Murphy, and she'll come up. Uh, you'll also uh, hear a little bit about Deacon Joseph Lustig, who was a guest of ours in the last episode, the bonus episode. Make sure you check that out if you haven't. And uh, with that, we leave you with episode five of Theology at the Eucharistic Table. We hope you enjoy. Anyway, so without more ado, please join me in welcoming the anonymous abbot of Mount Angel. Thank you, Owen. Uh, I asked Owen last night uh, how he could introduce me without uh, mentioning my name, but he did it. (laughs) Uh, Those of you that have had my class, which is quite a few of you in the graduate school, uh, know that I use this image uh, of uh, the importance of reading. To, To be a good theologian, you have to read and read and read a lot. And then I say that the value of being in the classroom is that what you have in your professor is a talking book. And the value of a talking book is you feel it fresh, you feel it live, you feel it coming, and you can ask the talking book questions. And yesterday we had a great talking book here in Dr. Fogerberg. Uh, He modeled for you a tremendous method in theology. You will have noticed uh, that he has read a ton of things. And that's why he's a good theologian. He reads a lot. He reads very widely. And then he himself thinks about what he's read and puts it together. That's what we saw him doing yesterday. Uh, You saw really uh, a master theologian. You saw a talking book, which is to say... Uh, a master teacher. And he did a lot of linking together of thoughts from such a wide variety of teachers, of writers. He read the scriptures themselves. He read the fathers of the church in many different traditions, Latin, Greek, Syrian. He, He was referring to liturgical texts often, He's deeply influenced by a number of Greek Orthodox theologians, whom he named, by many Roman Catholic theologians as well, Uh, by C.S. Lewis and Chesterton, and poetry besides. And that produced in him a kind of eloquence of his own. And that eloquence helped carry, carry his lectures along. I would say... One of the reasons I call him a master teacher is not just because he's read a ton, but that he can share that, and his pacing of the sharing is just right. Um, I I was very admiring of him, and I was so happy to think of you as my own students and the students of this seminary being exposed to such a master. We were talking last night at dinner together, and 
he used an expression that I don't think he used while we were, while he was uh, talking in his lectures. But he spoke about uh, one of the things that is happening when we do theology and when we're learning theology and reading theology is you learn the lingo. It's a kind of a language. Now, lingo can be, uh, can, it's a word that can mislead us if we talk about theological lingo because it sort of sounds like a club or something, you know. Only people that know the lingo can be in the club. But no, that's, uh, there's a usefulness to lingo. There's a usefulness to theological language of a certain level. Uh, it may not be the same level that you're going to be using when you're preaching or whatever, but uh, the lingo of academic discourse can let you think thoughts you don't otherwise have a tool to think with. And I want to give you some examples of his lingo that you heard and that you can use and, and that you know. Uh, certainly, a good number of you who have been in the graduate school now uh, recognized a lot of what Dr. Fagerberg was saying yesterday. It coincides very directly with my own project in the Introduction to Theology. It coincides very directly what you've learned from Dr. Cummings in uh, Communion Ecclesiology and now Dr. Kehoe doing the same. We have different styles but you need to be able to recognize the same thoughts moving in different ways. A different voice and a different register, but many, many connections. I would say that our project here at Mount Angel uh, is the project that David Fagerberg announced as his own. And that is about bringing uh, liturgy, and piety and theology together in a single vision. He talked about liturgical everything. He said uh, he wants to have a, a liturgical asceticism, a liturgical mysticism, a liturgical moral theology, a liturgical pastoral theology, a liturgical exegesis, a liturgical dogmatics, Meaning by all of that, that at the root of any of these academic efforts, call them theology, at the root of these different styles of theology, there is the liturgy as the source of what's happening. He said that very clearly yesterday. But this is our Mount Angel curriculum. This is what uh, I talked to graduate students in their first day in theology, first first day of the week, first class they have. We talk about the community that celebrates Eucharist and developing out of that experience of Eucharist a methodical treatment of all of theology's questions. Be that, what is the church? Be that, who is Jesus Christ? Be that, what is his death and resurrection mean? What is the Holy Trinity? What is moral theology? How ought I to live my personal relationship with God? How do I send myself and evangelize the world? All of that rooted in the liturgy and ultimately with a return to the liturgy as its goal. 
This is the Mount Angel curriculum, the shape of the Mount Angel curriculum. You are being exposed to it. You saw yesterday, I think, in Dr. Fogerberg, that um, this is not peculiar to Mount Angel. Uh, this is, this is, that we're part of a bigger discourse. But it's not approach, an approach to theology that you will find everywhere. You will not find in every theological school. He himself, Dr. Fogerberg himself said as much uh, that it's his project. It's Schmemann's project. It's, oh my God, there's a problem in the theological academy. It's divorced from liturgy. Piety is divorced from dogmatics. Liturgy is divorced from dogmatics. What are you doing? It's the way it works. Life is strange. Uh, and yet here's a great thinker. Pioneering a vision. Going forward with it. That's about method. Let me talk about some of the things he spoke about in his, uh, in his language from yesterday. In part to explain it in part to, uh, to be sure you got it, and in part to say what was good about his choices from, from my perspective. Uh, he gave a lot of credit to the influence of Schmemann, Alexander Schmemann, uh, the Greek Orthodox theologian on his life, and Schmemann who influenced very strongly Aidan Kavanaugh, uh, the Benedictine, who had a big impact on him. Uh, but it's from Schmemann that he learned, uh, and, and, and he, he presents himself as a dis disciple of Schmemann, whose project is a slow and patient linking together of liturgy, piety, and theology. That's the project, to bring into one single effort in the life of the church, liturgy, piety, and theology. Because he says, if if those stand alone, and very often they do, uh, neither, n none of the three can be true to themselves. If all you do is liturgy, then you're just doing ceremonies. If all you do is piety, piety unconnected to the church's liturgy, or uninfluenced by any contact with theology, God knows what your piety is, uh, and to whom it can relate. Something eccentric, something all alone. But piety isn't all alone. And if theology is divorced from its liturgical roots or from piety, namely the changing of an individual's life, then theology is just annoying talk. But theology, piety, liturgy, all of those things are what the church lives by. And this is a vision uh, pioneered in some ways by Schmemann, recovered more than pioneered. It's been there, we lose it, you pick it up again. Um, but Dr. Fagerberg is trying to do this in a fresh way uh, in the Roman Catholic scene of the United States of America and this ecclesial context. And as such, working with this tremendous richness from, from so many other places in this ecclesial context of the United States, he's just a very good American 
thinker whose project is the same kind of project that we're trying to promote here in this seminary, and that is to develop in all of the people who, who study here and who live here uh, an easy flow between liturgy, piety, and theology. Let's take a different tack. I want to go over his definition of liturgy that he gave you and to be sure that you got it and to tell you what I think is, is so valuable about that kind of formulation. It's this. Liturgy Liturgy is Trinitarian perichoresis canonically extended to invite synergistic assent to deification. That's lingo. <laughs> that is a supreme example of lingo. But if you learn the lingo, you've said something there that you can't say, that you can't think without the lingo. <laughs> Okay, that's lingo. And if you learn the lingo, then you, can, then you can have some thoughts that you can't have without the lingo. So let's go through it and see what's valuable about what he's saying. Liturgy is Trinitarian perichoresis. Perichoresis, he explained that word. It's a Greek word, which means, um, I like to translate it as circle dance. Peri Choresis. Choresis, our word choreography, that means dancing. Huh? Choresis is a dance. Peri is around in circles. The um, Greek theologians use this to describe the relationship of the Trinity, the, the persons of the Trinity among themselves. They, they are in a relationship, they are in a relationship with one another that defines the, the, their very being. The Father is not the Son, the Son is not the, fa the, the Father, but there is no Father that isn't always with the Son, and no Son that isn't always with the Father. And the Spirit is not the Father and the Son, uh, but is always the Spirit of the Father and the Son, and in relationship to Father and the Son. And that's beautiful when you understand that those aren't just words but that these are words that bring us into an understanding of who God is and how God is. That's perichoresis. Liturgy, God is perichoresis, but liturgy is perichoresis canonically extended. What's that mean? That's a good one. Canonically extended. I remember it was only about two or three weeks ago in first theology uh, class, my introduction to theology class, I told the students, here's the word kenosis. You've got to know this word. It comes up all the time. It, Paul used it in his hymn in the Philippians. Christ Jesus, though being in the form of God, emptied himself, kenosis himself, in order to pour out Trinitarian life. So when, when, a, when in the lingo... In the lingo, if you, word, if you use the word kenosis, then you're supposed to know, 
Oh, that word comes from Paul. That's Jesus Christ being in the form of God, emptying himself and taking the form of a slave. So liturgy is Trinitarian perichoresis, what God is, canonically extended. Ooh, that's beautiful. That means that's, that's the, pour, the Trinity pours itself out. It's in the Son's incarnation. The word kenosis implies that. Canonically extended. To invite a synergistic ascent to deification. More lingo. Tremendous lingo. To invite. Because there we spoke about, he spoke about this image of a downward descent. A downward coming of the Trinitarian life. But it comes down to bring humanity up in an ascent, not a forced ascent, a choice to invite an ascent to synergist, a synergistic ascent. What did he say that meant? Uh, very nicely put. He said, God energizes, we synergize. Okay? So God's got the energy, but he's giving humanity, he's created humanity so that it can sin energize, so that it can do something with God. If it chooses to, that's, that's the in- invitation. So here comes the Trinitarian perichoresis, canonically emptying itself into the world, asking, inviting the response of, I assent to going up into Trinitarian life, which will be nothing less than deification. That's a very good definition of liturgy, gang. That's, uh, that's worth learning the lingo. That's, it. that's a good way to think. And all that language comes from the tradition. Those are the authors he's reading. That's the dogma of the church. But it's freshly put. That's him in the American scene. That's him in the American theological scene. You wouldn't say that in a homily. But you won't preach much of a homily if you don't understand that. You're going to talk a different way in a homily. That's a different question. But if you don't know how to think that deeply about the mysteries, your homily will will slip into just talking about yourself. And that's no good. Anyway, that's a different question. <laughs> okay. Um, he, had a, he had a lot of pauses as he was going through that, through that image. Uh, that was... Um, uh, that, through, that, um, through that definition. Um, one of the quotes that I really uh, appreciated... Uh, was somebody, I don't remember, I didn't get who it was, but he said, God relinquishes his utter transcendence in order to dwell lovingly in all things. Yeah, he's, full of, he's full of great, great quotes that way. He recognizes in other authors his ideas and promotes them in that way. 
Okay, that's important, I think, is that definition of liturgy. Let, let me go on to a, a, just a different topic that, that, uh, that struck me very much, and it's what he said about pastoral theology. He said that pastoral theology is, you know, that we tend to think of pastoral theology is, uh, oh, now at last we're getting down to the practical stuff, down to earth. Here we go, let's get out there. What's the program going to be, you know? And, okay, well, yeah, you ask questions like that at some point, but pastoral theology, liturgical pastoral theology, he wants to put that word liturgical in front of everything to deepen the game. And he put the word liturgical in front of pastoral theology, and I hope you heard him because he knew he was talking to seminarians. And he said, no, he says, you need to become pastors who know how to quicken baptism in the people of God, how to quicken baptism, how to feed people on the bread of heaven, how to awaken the mystical in them. That's a layman asking that of pastors. Hmm? Okay, he's a theologian. He knows what's needed. But Mrs. Murphy, though she doesn't know the lingo, is asking for the same. She's asking that the gift of baptism be awakened in her. That's pastoral theology. She expects to be fed on the real bread from heaven. She needs to know about Trinitarian perichoresis canonically extended. Everyone needs to know that. That's pastoral theology. When the pastor pastors his people into that kind of theology. Joseph Lustig uh, asked a question of him about uh, liturgical preaching. And uh, I didn't know if, if uh, Joseph's question was a plant, uh, hoping that, that he would answer a certain way. Uh, but you know, I don't know if Joseph is here this morning, but... Uh, uh, I wanted to tease him yesterday and didn't, uh, didn't wasn't able to see you. Yeah, Joseph's here. <laughs> no, I, but because the, uh, Joseph had uh, um, introduction to preaching from me. So I thought, well, surely he knows the answer to that question. And so he was hoping Dr. Fagerberger would, uh, would give that answer. And I, I would say I was a little disappointed that that uh, Dr. Fagerberger didn't pick up on it a little bit more because uh, the homiletic directory itself, newly published by the, uh, by the Congregation for Divine Worship, is, has a very strong push for a new direction in preaching, which is nothing less than liturgical preaching. Meaning what? Meaning that, you, in the, that the pastor in preaching teaches his people what the liturgy is and does liturgical exegesis on the scriptural text does mystagogical exegesis on, the, on what's happening in the liturgy and sends people out into living their lives strengthened by the Trinitarian perichoresis canonically extended. That's going to be the gospel in the world. And, and uh, yesterday... Uh, Dr. Fargerberg uh, really pleaded that pastors do that. 
I, I, I wanted him to make a stronger connection with preaching, but I'm a talking book too. So here I'm, I'm making that connection for you and saying that we're trying to do that very much in our own program of preaching here at the seminary. Here's another direction we can go. He said at one point in his talk, mysticism is caused by grace. And grace abides in the church. Yet our hearts resist. And so enter asceticism. It's a good way to understand asceticism. You know, asceticism is a, is a kind of word in religion that can easily be misunderstood because you think, oh, well, you know, every religion should have its tough stuff. Here's ours. I'm going to be tough. I'm going to be ascetical. What for? You know, you know it's got to have a scope. It's not just like, oh, I guess if you're suffering, it must be religion. And no. As, Here's an image, he said. It's feeling the penetration of the cross into our own ego. Brilliant image. Feeling the penetration of the cross into our own ego. Mortifying the old Adam. How can we, how can we think that in this condition of our fallen race, we would just automatically be able to pick up, oh, here comes canonic, canonically delivered perichoresis of the pure life of the Trinity. I'm ready for that. Huh, no one's ready for that. You, you, you can't do that, he was pointing out. You can't do that unless you are free of the eight evil thoughts that he outlined by, from Evagrius. And it's, it's not about Evagrius. Evagrius is a spokesman of a whole huge tradition that preceded him and that came through him in a more focused way into the whole church and is still there today. That's why Evagrius is important. Because he describes how, and yesterday, this was yesterday's second lecture, and it was really a tremendous lecture, in which he exposed how the eight evil thoughts that afflict human nature, the eight evil thoughts that afflict human nature, will muck up your capacity for liturgy, will muck up your capacity to be what God created human beings to be. God created human beings to freely assent and to receive Trinitarian perichoresis and to ascend to deification with the whole cosmos in, as, with the whole cosmos connected to them and following them. That's what human beings were made for. And so if you have the wrong kind of relationship with food, sex, and money, or if you get angry all the time, or if you're vainglorious and proud, good luck of any of that coming in. It can't. And we know it can't. Something in us recognizes the truth of that. We long for, we're made to long for, we taste and see that the Lord is good. And that's what the liturgy is designed to awaken in us. 
It's designed to awaken in us our best selves and, and to give us the strength from God to change our lives such that we can become uh, what God meant us to be. And that is these priests, this, this offering of ourselves and of the whole of humanity in thanksgiving to God. In that context, he gave us some beautiful images. Again, his wide reading, and this time from the Father's origin. Hold on to those images where Origen was commenting on the fact that the book of Genesis tells us about Isaac uh, clearing the dirt out of the wells. You know, those darn Philistines came and, 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 and plugged up all the wells. Ruinous. <laughs> Just awful. And then Isaac comes along and cleans out the wells. Well, that's Christ who comes and cleans out all the dirt that the Philistines poured into the well of my being. Who are the Philistines? The Philistines are those eight evil thoughts. And Christ comes along and clears them out. And then what's the well? He who believes in me from within him, springs of living water will bubble up. That's, that's Isaac for you. What, what a well cleaner Isaac is. Image of Christ. Image of Christ, okay? Or beautiful origin about the woman who lost the coin and is sweeping madly through her house to clean it up and to find that coin. And wouldn't you know it, Origen seizes on the detail. Notice that she didn't lose the coin outside her house, but inside her house. So the work has to take place inside. Clean up the inside, and what will you find? The coin. And he goes on to say there, the coin that has on it both sides, the image and likeness of God that you are. See how strong an image is? See how, this is, this is, this is, this, this is cross-cultural. I mean, that's Alexandria in the second century. It still works very good in 21st century North America. This is going to reach people, huh? That's an image, reaching people. It's the gospel. Isaac the Syrian, be, uh, very, very well cited by Dr. Fagerberg, where uh, Isaac the Syrian is in the Evagrian tradition, noticing the eight principal thoughts uh, and what trouble they are. And he says, when we talk about them individually, we call it evil thoughts. When we want to speak about it globally, we call it the world. Uh, I didn't know that text of Isaac the Syrian. I was glad to know it because then Fagerberg went on to say, so we're talking about worldliness as a problem. Worldliness is a problem. And what is the pro what's the problem with worldliness in the spiritual life? It's the problem of taking the world without reference to God. That's worldliness. And if you, if you live in the world without reference to God, you're worldly, in a, in a way that, is, that goes against what God intended. The opposite, uh, Fagerberg said, would be liturgical cosmology. In other words, living in the world with reference to God. Worldliness strips the sacramental out of the world. Uh, it, it, it's, and, and spirituality, if it's divorced from the liturgy, will make the mistake of thinking to be holy, to be mystical, 
uh, is to think that uh, we will find mystery by leaving the world. But <clears throat> liturgical cosmology says, no. We recover the proper use of our body and spirit for liturgical purposes. Another line that I very much appreciated from Dr. Fargerberg was when he said, and this was his own thinking, you can, he just, you can, I, thought, I hope you saw that about him. I mean, I know him from, from over 20 years, so I know what he's like, but I think you, I, I, you saw it happening in front of you. Uh, he's, he just thinks about things. Very, he's a very thoughtful man. Huh? He loves to sit at home and think. It's a good thing to do. Anyhow, uh, so he, he put it this way. The world has an unexpected effect on the mind undergoing conversion. The world has an unexpected effect on the mind undergoing conversion. And what he, where he went with that, how he developed that, was to say, when you undergo conversion, and remember he gave us the etymology, metanoia, that's when your, your, your noose, your, your noetic thing takes a turn, metanoia, that's conversion, that's you learning to think in a different way. Huh? So when you undergo conversion, the thinking of a different way that is given us in Christ, the world has an unexpected effect on the mind, and it's a very positive effect on the mind. Suddenly the world is absolutely beautiful and gorgeous and meaningful to you, and full of logos, full of, full of, full of meaning. And, you, and so the world is not in, in the way between you and God. It is diaphanous. You, you see through it, and you see God through the world, and it's more beautiful to see God through the world because he's arranging it. That, that's how he wants us to be seen. And that's how he wants himself to be seen, is through the world. And you don't think that's so? I show you the incarnation of the eternal Son, which is the, the whole world saying Trinitarian perichoresis. So now, uh, that's when he started playing with the words. Now, outward and inward are not one better than the other. They, they move from one to the other. They're, in some sense, one and the same, though distinguishable. The present and the future. The same and yet distinguishable. Earth and heaven. The same and yet distinguishable. Visible and invisible. The same and yet distinguishable. This is like God. Father, Son, the same and yet distinguishable. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The same and yet distinguishable. Me in them. The same and yet distinguishable. Deification. And yet, distinct, and yet creatures. And so, the world has an unexpected effect on the mind undergoing conversion. He knew that that was an understatement to be sure. I'll say, the world has an unexpected effect on the mind undergoing conversion. 
So, he said, sin. This was in answer to a question from Nelson. Uh, but he spoke about sin also and he started developing it. Sin is settling for too little from the world. That's that's a new that's a you need kind you need things like that in American theology. Sin is because that, that's going to get people's attention because everyone goes oh wait, what do you mean we can't sin oh no I want to sin that, no no you know but what's wrong with sin who's going to help us see what's wrong with sin well this vision helps us see what's wrong with sin because sin is settling for too little from the world I think the world is only about food sex and money. No. Do you know what you were made for? Remember him asking that question? That's, that's the church's message. Do you know what you were made for? Yes, food, sex, and money, those are good things. But if you think that's all there is to the world, you have missed the mark. That's the harmartia, the, the etymology of the aim is deification. And you've sinned. That means you're making gods out of food, sex, and money, or your anger, or your pride, or whatever other logismos uh, bothers you. Well, there's still plenty more. But here, let's wrap it up, and I want to give you a chance to uh, share some thoughts of your own or to ask some questions. Liturgy is taken as ceremony alone. Remember, like he, he began saying, if you think liturgy is just ceremonies, you know, like they thought, oh, well, you like liturgy, you must like pageants, you like the Notre Dame football game, you love to wear a hat and gown, you like ceremonies. Listen, loving the liturgy isn't about loving ceremonies. They need to be done well, of course, that's, that's but. That's not liturgical theology. And he made a good connection with what theology itself knows about that. Scholastic theology uh, would call that uh, the sacramentum tantum. The sacrament is such. There's, there's something really there. You've got to do it right. It's got to be right. And it should be very well done. But you need also sacramentum at rest. The sacrament and the, the thing that it is. The, what it refers to. And so, you've got ceremonies. Good. What's in them? Trinitarian perichoresis, canonically extended, inviting assent to deification. And if you don't get that, then forget the ceremonies. They're not doing much. So, that was... How he wrapped it up once. He wrapped it up about eight times. Uh, he wrapped it up a second time with a theologian named Divo Barsotti, who's not much translated in English, and is a wonderful Italian theologian. Uh, David is working on a project to have him more translated into English. But uh, it was Barsotti who said, In theology, Christianity finds its doctrine, but in the liturgy, she finds her very self. That's the Mount Angel curriculum, too. We say, listen, we're going to do theology here, okay? We got to. Got to learn it. Got to learn the lingo. But we start theology and we systematically connect it 
to where the church finds her very self in the liturgy itself. And then we do theology. And we keep coming back to liturgy to be sure our theology is on course. It's a criteria for us. Or you had it also said again in the question that uh, Edmund asked, which was an interesting question, and, and Fagerberg found it interesting too, where he said that uh, uh, Edmund asked, which is the stronger, uh, liturgical mysticism or an intense individual mystical experience? And that's a, that's a, that's a great question. Huh? And uh, he thought about it, and he answered it again with images. He said, uh, Isaiah's ecstatic vision is less than the encounter with the carpenter of Nazareth. And he said again, and then he answered it in a different way. Weighed on an ontological scale, liturgy is the stronger. What does that mean, weighed on an ontological scale? On an ontological scale, liturgy is an objective reality in the life of the church. Liturgy infallibly delivers what it signifies. And so as such, it is unquestionably... See how valuable lingo is? It is unquestionably Trinitarian perichoresis canonically delivered. Over here is a tremendously intense mystical experience of an individual. Beautiful. We hope it's good. We're not sure what it is. Okay? And, of course, God works there. But in ways we can't trace. And, therefore, in ways that are not for us to judge. But we can trace, very clearly and objectively, what God is, what God is doing in the liturgy. An objective presence of Trinitarian perichoresis. Okay, let's stop there. We have about 15 minutes for your reactions or questions. Okay, here's my question. In your class, Introduction to Theology, you talk a lot about the particular shape of the Eucharistic celebration, the particular form that it takes. And in this presentation, we've been focusing on liturgy, I think the word used was thickened, the definition was thickened to incorporate uh, everything, basically. So I was curious what implications that this has for the particular shape of the rite, whether Eastern or Western, anything. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that um, for those of you that uh, aren't in that class uh, or haven't been in it, uh, what we do in the class is, is I, I look at different parts of the rite and then I trace that to uh, its equivalent in the academy and, and try to show how uh, the, the theological project of, of developing a dogmatics is, is derives from that. So that's what Brody is referring to in his question. Yesterday, Dr. Fogerberg was always speaking in broad strokes about the liturgy. What we do in our class is we, we start digging into a particular rite and saying, see how one can think about this, see what its impact could be. And so um, that's, what, that's, that's what that class is. It just says, the rite has all these moments in it 
we need to understand what they are. And what, uh, you know, I don't put it that way in my own class, but you can, you can take uh, uh, the sort of thing I do in there and say, oh, look here, now we read from the scriptures. What is this? This is an example of Trinitarian perichoresis coming out. And coming out where? You, one of the emphasis of my class, you surely get it, is in this concrete assembly here and now called the church. So, you know, give me some of that Trinitarian perichoresis. Show me where I can have it. I can have it in this assembly that celebrates Eucharist. I'll show you what the, what the right means and I'm showing you that in that way we both receive the Trinitarian emptying and we assent to deification or we are exercising our priesthood in a return of the cosmos. So it's just a way of the, the liturgy examined. That's what we do in that class. The liturgy examined would deliver you that kind of content. Short answer. Okay, something else? Uh, thank you very much, Abbot Jeremy. Um, I was wondering if, as we're talking so much about how liturgy has to do with theology, um, how do we understand how perhaps lesser understandings of liturgy have an effect on theology? And then, I know you addressed this in our class, but I can't quite remember how you formulated it, which comes first, um, theology or liturgy? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, uh, lesser understandings of liturgy are going to either have no impact on theology or simply weak or vague impact on theology. And in some sense... Uh, that's uh, my position, our position in our, uh, of criticism that, uh, of, uh, of a lot of theology. It, what you have in the liturgy, if, if, you don't have a, if you don't have a good celebration of liturgy or a deep enough understanding of it, it will have no impact on theology. But their theology will be anyway having its thoughts, having its impact, and what is the criteria? What are the criteria by which you measure are those are those good thoughts? And one of the things I would have said to you in class would be, it's the liturgy itself which teaches us how much a theological question weighs. You know, is is this is this a little question, or is this at the heart of the matter? And so, liturgy should uh, well understood, deeply understood. Would, would, would show us what the task of Christology is and what, what might be uh, on the edges of that and so forth. So, um, and which comes first, liturgy or theology? Well, they both do. Uh, they both do in, in this sense, is that liturgy already reflects theological decisions of a community. They, you know, their liturgy are not magic rites that drop from the sky and we perform them. No, the liturgy already reflects a kind of theological understanding of the church. 
by its arrangement of things it does, by the liturgical texts that accompany the gestures. So all that's theology already. But it's what uh, Fagerberg calls theologia prima, namely theology that belongs to the whole community, and it's why Mrs. Murphy is a theologian, because she knows how to move inside the liturgy. And she's therefore moving inside theological decisions. But when we say theology in the narrower sense, we're talking about the, the academy. And in the academy, then uh, that, I think, the academy's theology is best done in this regular relationship with the liturgy, uh, influenced by the liturgy, but also... Uh, theology itself should have its impact on the liturgy in terms of how it's understood and even how it's celebrated. So it goes both ways in, the, in, a, in a healthy relationship. Thank you, Abbott. Um, when you're talking about the use of lingo, then you were, then you were introducing your, your rea reaction with, and the lingo that the professor used yesterday, um, would you say that the same lingo is applicable across all different forms of rites and, and uh, even the forms of those rites in the Catholic celebrations? We have, of course, we, if we're talking about it specifically in the American context as opposed to uh, the Byzantine context or the Maronite context or all of these different forms, would you say that that same lingo is applicable across the board? Uh, it depends on, at the level at which you're wanting to speak. If, if, if you're wanting to speak of the, of the Christian mysteries in general, it could be applicable. It's not necessarily a required use of that lingo. But uh, everything that Fagerberg said yesterday about the liturgy would not be right-specific. It, 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 it would fit all the rites, even though it derives from particular traditions. Uh, but people are going to prefer uh, lingo, this lingo or that, or know this lingo or that. Those are, that lingo is it's a useful word, but we don't want to use it too much. It's, we're talking about theological traditions and, and uh, ways in which traditions have spoken about things. Uh, and Fagerberg is, is cross-fertilizing traditions. And I think your question, Timothy, in a, in a certain sense, is is wondering, uh, you know, how do the are we talking about all of the traditions here, or, or all the liturgical families, and and we are, and there's a way in which we have to be able to talk about all the liturgical families with broad strokes, because we are in communion with different liturgical families. I'm going to come to a crashing halt. We're out of time, and I have another project on. So thanks for your attention. This, was a, this would be like, uh, this is another talking book, and I, I hope I'm just showing you. Here's how you do theology. You read a lot, you think, and you keep talking, and that's what we did in, in these two days together. So thanks for your attention. It's a pleasure to be with you. So thank you for listening to Theology at the Eucharistic Table podcast. I hope you all enjoyed it. Um, if you have any feedback, uh, let us know with any questions, comments, concerns at theology at mtangel.edu and theology at 
mtangel.com. And stay tuned for episode six, in which Nelson, Ben, Caleb, and myself will sit down with Abbot Jeremy and offer our own reactions and reflections to his reactions and reflections of Dr. Fagerberg's presentation. Um, Thank you very much.